Hi, I'm Dr. Barbara Byers, and today I want to talk about restoration, specifically from Joel 2 and Acts 2. So if we look at chapter 1 of Joel, he paints just a terrifying picture of destruction. There, He describes the four different stages and types of locust. He mentions the palmer worm, the locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar. So the palmer worm is the pupa stage, which is the gnar. The gnar bites and aggravates and troubled. The second is the locust. That's the imago stage. That is the swarmer. Now, these are pretty scary. They gather as swarms like bees. Uh, they become a horde that hovers and encircles. You ever had that in your life? Yeah, the swarming bands of these type of grasshoppers are called outbreaks. And then when the outbreaks join together, they can create an upsurge. So they're massing in an upsurge and the upsurges that amass regionally then can develop into a plague. You know, a plague is imminent when you when you see um, you see them amassing and coming together. And these swarms are powerful flyers. They can fly quite a long distance, consuming, stripping vegetation, vegetation wherever they settle, they destroy. The third one he mentions, the canker worm, is the devourer which creeps in usually stealthily uh, to steal and to devour. Sounds like um, uh, when, John, when John says the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And then lastly, the caterpillar, the larva stage, is the consumer. The consumer strips and lays bare. So these four stages in Joel 1 really give us a portrayal of complete destruction from these years that the locusts have eaten. The locusts in every type and form have completely laid bare. Uh, he says the vines are wasted, the fig trees are splintered, grain is ruined, fresh oil fails, wheat and barley harvest are destroyed, the, the pomegranate and apple trees have all dried up and don't bear fruit. The seed is rotten and shriveled. The corn is withered. The barns are broken down. The pastures are ruined. I mean, he goes on and on. And because of this, the emotional cost is very great too. There's despair. There's grieving. There's a withering of, of joy. And the offerings to the Lord have ceased. There's only dryness. There's only waste places and vanished dreams. What a picture of devastation and barrenness and dryness. So I wonder if you've ever experienced uh, some of this. I know I have. And you can feel disheartened for a very long time and wonder what in the world is happening to my life and will this ever change? It seems so final sometimes, that kind of devastation. But God... And his intent 2,400 years ago when this was written is the same as his intent now. So he is willing in his mercy to grant a remedy. And his remedy begins with an invitation to his people to repent. He says, 
even now, return to me with all your heart. That was mercy calling. That was the Lord saying, I see the destruction and I'm calling you back in the midst of destruction, mercy. So they really needed to become aware of how far their hearts had gone astray and uh, what they had done. And they needed to take responsibility and come and bring the fruit of repentance to the Lord. And oh my goodness, then what an outpouring was promised to them in the very next chapter in Joel 2. Listen to this. Grain, new wine, your reproach and scorn and shame are removed. The enemy is driven out. Spring and autumn rains will pour over them. All the years, all the years, the swarming locust, the devouring locust, the stripping locust, all of that damage is restored. Every kind of destruction in our life, there's a promised restoration. It was a time for them uh, of mercy. It was an invitation uh, to his mercy so that there would be a time of plenty, of outpouring, of overflow. Their crops were gonna be green. Fruit was gonna hang on the vine again. The, the threshing floor would be full. Their vats would overflow with oil and new wine. But most wondrous of all, right in the middle of that, was this incredible promise. I'm going to pour my spirit out I'm going to pour it out on men and women. I'm going to pour it out on the young and the old. And you're going to have prophecies and dreams and visions. You're going to see signs and wonders. And God is still in this wonderful business of restoration. Whatever the years, the locust, whatever kind of locust have eaten, uh, he wants to give back to us in his way restoration really is God's domain. It really is his sphere. It really is in his not only ability, but willingness. And restoration means everything we've lost, we get back. That's restoration. So let's just look at the lives of three people, uh, Joseph, David, and Sarah real quick. And we see this as a young teen, Joseph, uh, his brothers unfairly turned on him, beat him up, and sold him into slavery. And the next 13-year journey was grueling. He went into slavery in a different land with a different language from slavery. It got worse. He went into prison as a slave. And um, he had all of this um, disappointment in the face of his ongoing willingness to maintain his integrity. I mean, the locust stripped everything. His favored position as a son, his wealth, his inheritance, his language, his status, his work, his future, everything was stripped. And then he was remembered, but God. And God did something Joseph could never do. At age 30, he got called up to interpret Pharaoh's dream and suddenly finds himself in the leadership as prime minister over the whole land. He was given a wife, had two sons. He named his firstborn Manasseh, which means 
making to forget, or God made me to forget. He, for, he forgave his brothers, and he forgot the sting of the terrible pain he'd experienced. He didn't forget the facts, but what it had done to his heart, God restored and as we learn to forgive others, and as we learn to bless them who hurt us, we can forget the pain. He learned how to recover from family trauma, because that would be classified as trauma. There's certain that that was uh, inflicted on him. Not only that, he turned around and saved those very brothers who had misused him and their wives and children and kept alive that whole clan, brought them to Egypt and fed them when they would have starved. Then he named his second son Ephraim, and Ephraim means fruitful, fruitfulness, uh, especially in the land of his affliction, he became fruitful in the midst of that. And so when we trust God, when we wait on his time, when we release others with forgiveness, we are poised and ready to receive his outpouring, his fullness, and become fruitful ourselves. And so God gave him an overflow. And the same measure of destruction was the same measure and more of restoration. But forgiveness was the key because then once you forgive, you see you can stand apart from the pain that's inflicted. We release our judgments against others. We leave the justice to God who is well able uh, to bring justice and restoration. By forgiving them, they no longer had the power to shape his future. You know, the enemy wants to anchor our emotions in the past and our thought life in the past and our destiny somehow tied to the past. But our history can be rewritten by the Lord as we trust him. Hosea 6.11 says, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. He appointed Joseph's harvest and his entire people will saved. One of the things mentioned in Joel 2 is that their shame and reproach would be removed as part of this restoration. And in scripture, reproach is referred to as shame, disgrace, reviling, and dishonor. You ever experienced any of those things? But Isaiah 25, 8 says the Lord will remove, remove the reproach of his people. And on the cross, that's exactly what Jesus did. He removed our reproach. He removed our shame. He died in our place. Uh, some, quite some years ago, I had a dream. And in this dream, I was ministering to this young man, probably in his early 30s. And when I finished ministering him to him, he turned to minister to me. And I feel like at that point, he at least became a representation of Jesus. And he prayed for me. And then he kissed me all across my forehead. And I could literally, you know how dreams are, I could feel physically the kisses across my forehead. And I think it was the thoughts of my mind, right? He was renewing my mind. And then the young man stood up over me, looked down and he said this, the Lord is taking care of and removing your reproach. It was a wonderful dream. And it's taken me a while to, I think, understand it and really receive that. That's incredible that the Lord removes our reproach. 
Okay, let's look at the second one. Let's look at David. You're very familiar with his life, I'm sure. So in First Samuel 16, we see this young teenager, and he's out doing what he does, worshiping the Lord on his heart, tending his father's sheep. He's the baby of a whole line of uh, tall strapping brothers, right? And uh, the prophet Samuel comes at God's command to anoint one of those boys as the next king. And, uh, and none of the older brothers fit the bill. And so he comes in and Samuel anoints him with oil. And 1 Samuel 16, 13 says, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. That's what the anointing will do. So enter adversity. King Saul at first thinks David's wonderful. David slays Goliath and, and Saul's like, who, who is that young man? And he honors him in lots of ways. And then he eventually turned on him with great jealousy because Saul was insecure. So David hid in the desert. He lived in caves. He lived on the run. It was a horrible way to live. He even left his own nation for a while to have to go and live with the Philistines. And he gathered around him uh, this, just this ragtag, misfit band of men and he shaped them in to a, a mighty army, the army of his mighty men, and he fought battles with them, and he learned to lead during that time. So about 14 or 15 years elapsed between the time the prophet Samuel anointed him and the time he took the throne at age 30. Those were grueling years. Those were stripping years. The, the locusts were gnawing at him. But like Joseph, those years also prepared him to reign. And like Joseph, we see his heart of forgiveness. He kept a tender heart. Uh, in 1 Samuel 24, Saul was chasing him with 3,000 men, and David was hiding in a cave with his men. They were being very quiet. And Saul had to, quote, relieve himself. So Saul went in the cave, was taking care of business, and he was right by David. And David was so close, he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And this is how tender-hearted David was. It bothered David's conscience. So he came out of the cave and called to Saul and even bowed down to Saul. He was returning good for evil that was rendered to him. Saul was full of jealousy, but David kept a soft heart. That soft heart, along with the warrior's training, qualified him to rule. And God restored all those years when he set him on the throne and told him that many generations after him would rule. All right, let's look at Sarah lastly. Sarah was a very beautiful woman and uh, she suffered quite a bit. Uh, even in old age, she was still considered beautiful. So she was from the land of Chaldea she married her half-brother Abraham, which was not unusual in those days. They were Bedouins. And then the Lord told her husband to go out to a land that God would show him. So she left everything and went with Abraham. And I think they traveled about 1,500 miles in tents. Can you imagine that kind of life? Anyway, they detoured to Egypt and uh, Abraham was afraid and he asked her to lie for him. Uh, he wasn't protecting her, but the Lord protected her. Uh, she still honored her husband, 
but after year after year after year, she remained barren. And um, in her grief and in her impatience, she finally offered her maid to Abraham and said, you know, I want a child. And that, that didn't turn out well. So we have to understand at that time in history, there was really a, only one way for a woman to have her identity, to have her place in society. That was to marry and bear children. And if she didn't, she would be humiliated and reproached. Think, think about Samuel's mother, Hannah. She was reproached and humiliated until she had um, Samuel. They, they were to make this one important con contribution to their family's life. So after the debacle, um, Sarah really gave up. And uh, many years later, finally, the promise came to pass. In her very old age, Isaac was born. And Isaac, uh, his name means laughter. I love that. Her restoration was so abundant that she became what God said. She became the mother of many nations and the mother of a royal line of kings. There had been a long and painful wait and a wonderful and full and honorable restoration on her behalf from the Lord. It's what God always intended for her. So God often transcends our perceptions of how life should go. His thoughts aren't our thoughts. His ways aren't our ways. And even when he restores, and he does, and he will as we trust him, it's according to his timing and his way and his purposes for us. He doesn't act in the same way for everyone, but uh, he has us wonderfully in mind no matter even when we're going through the time of the locust. And he is always for us, even if the wait is long, even if the wait is hard, even where there's real pain involved and real locust involved, God intends to work something good and restore. But restoration doesn't come apart from one. Three things, let me say three things. One is faith, because Hebrews says, apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. We believe his goodness. We believe he wants to restore us and that he will come through. We can be like Sarah in Hebrews 11, 11, and it says she received the power to conceive past the proper time of life. Why? Because she considered him faithful who had promised. So here she was, a woman of faith. It wavered at times, but she believed God. So faith is one element of that. Second element we saw is the willingness to forgive, the willingness to stay tenderhearted. That clears the path of anyone else's sin before us and the effect of their sin. And it keeps us in a position before the Lord of being able to receive. And the third thing that I mentioned is keeping a tender heart. We have to refuse the withering effects of bitterness. We do. We have to refuse it. And sometimes we have to refuse it time and time and time again when we look at what's been stripped from our lives, when we look at what someone else has done, when we look at seemingly the effects of time. We have to refuse it and we have to turn back and trust the Lord and keep our heart tender. 
And you know, his promise to us is the same as Joel 2 because he poured out that promise at Pentecost. We see it in Acts 2 uh, when the Holy Spirit was poured out. There were signs and wonders and prophecies and tongues. And we're still living in those days where the Holy Spirit is present to restore and to pour out. So I would just ask you today, where do you need restoration? What things have been stripped? What things have been taken away? Where is it not fruitful anymore? Where do you need the reproach and shame rolled away? Bring that to the Father whose heart is restoration. Line it out to him. Name it for him and believe him for your Acts 2 miracle as well. Thanks for joining me and I hope you'll come again next time and I bless you with his abundant restoration.